Our gospel for this morning comes from the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's a long one, however, so we're going to remain seated uh, for the reading today. This is the trial and the passion of Jesus, according to Luke. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, He stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, where he began, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some sign. He questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then he put an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. That same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is perverting the people. And here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Then they all shouted together, Away with this fellow! Release Barabbas for us! This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave the verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. As they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of the people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do this while the, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right 
and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Holy Week is finally here. With Easter falling so late this year, it feels like we've been waiting and waiting and waiting And now, here we are. Our Lenten journey has led us to Palm Sunday, and we will journey forth this week to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and to Easter morning. On this Palm Sunday, we hear and reenact again Jesus' triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, but then suddenly the shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, turn to shouts of, crucify, crucify him. Our gospel this morning, the trial of Jesus, reads to me like an episode of law and order. (laughs) We have trials and jurisdiction, interrogations, evidence, testimony, innocence or guilt, and political and public pressure. And like a good defense attorney, Luke maintains Jesus' innocence throughout the proceedings. Six times, six times in 49 verses, Jesus is declared innocent. Three times by Pontius Pilate, once by Herod, once by the thief who is crucified next to him, and finally by the Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross. Luke's point is that Jesus is innocent, blameless, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, pure and unblemished, a sacrifice to end all sacrifices, that he was crucified not for his own sin or his own wrongdoing, but to take away the sin of the world. But this story has unintended consequences because it lays the death of Jesus at the feet of the Jewish religious leaders and finally the people 
who turn on him and demand that they crucify him. And this passage and passages like it have been used to blame the Jewish community for the death of Jesus. This despite the fact that Pontius Pilate and the Roman Empire have all the power and all the authority here, and that it is ultimately Pilate who orders Jesus' execution. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think about the Roman Empire. I tend to think of history class in school and I think of museums and statues and artwork and great feats of engineering like amphitheaters and roads and aqueducts which still shape the European landscape. The Romans were enlightened for their time, but the Roman Empire was also brutal and oppressive. And along with the many other things that they invented, they also invented crucifixion itself. And so I have to say that It really bothers me that Luke, who is by far my favorite gospel writer, kind of feels like he throws the Jews under the bus in this story. But it turns out, when you dig into it more, Luke has his own reasons, because Luke and his followers were also living under Roman rule. Historians tell us that one of the major concerns for Luke is whether Christians can be good citizens of the Roman Empire. After all, their founder was executed as a political criminal, and they were being associated with the destruction of Jerusalem. And some people would have thought them as incendiaries and as revolutionaries. And Luke, in his portrait of Jesus, wants to show that Jesus himself taught an ethic that was entirely compatible with good citizenship of the empire. And so Luke, in trying to protect his people, endangers another group of vulnerable people. And once Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, a couple hundred years later, it gets even worse as the empire then owns the story and absolves itself of responsibility. This story is sticky and complicated, but one little observation I read this week helped me to see this story more clearly and to approach what it might mean for us today And it was just this one sentence. This story is a fascinating and dire depiction of how conquered people are divided and even pitted against each other. The story is a fascinating and dire depiction of how conquered people are divided and even pitted against each other. First, you have the Jews in Jerusalem at the time of the trial and passion of Jesus, Jews who were oppressed under the Roman Empire in Jerusalem, who were trying to protect their own people. In other versions of the Gospels, you see the work of the religious leaders was in order to offer Jesus as a scapegoat in order to protect the people in the city. And then for Luke, some years later, you had this nascent Christian community who have to demonstrate that they're not a threat, that they're law-abiding citizens of the empire in order for themselves to avoid persecution and violence. And so you have two religious minorities scrambling to survive under the weight of the empire, which causes all kinds of internal squabbles and winds up pitting them against one another despite their common ancestry. One of the books I refer to often to understand this dynamic is a great book by a Palestinian Lutheran pastor called Faith in the Face of Empire. And he writes that one policy every empire utilizes 
is to divide and conquer. He says, occupied people often start to fight amongst themselves concerning the best way to resist the empire and consequently end up fighting one another instead of fighting the empire itself. He argues that the whole New Testament is a collection of narratives that challenge the then-existing exclusive national and religious narratives. Instead of identifying with one people over against the others, which was the traditional way of forming one's identity, Jesus was concerned about reconciling the different groups in the land, knowing that that reconciliation was a prerequisite to peace. And so Jesus, rather than playing into defining ourselves over and against one another, offers another way, a new vision, reconciling people to himself and to one another. And so what does this mean for us? I think it illuminates the ways in which we can fall into the same trap, the ways in which we define ourselves over and against others, the ways that we find ourselves pitted against each other. We are so polarized today, and it's making us miserable. There's so much pain and heartbreak and tension in our lives now amongst our families and our friends and in our community and in our culture. But polarization benefits those in power, largely defined, because it's easier to maintain power when everybody else is fighting against each other. As people of faith, we must reject the premise that it is our destiny to be forever, destiny to be forever pitted against one another, where family and friends and people of other faiths and heritage somehow have become our mortal enemies. For we are not as divided as the powers and principalities and empires of our time would like us to think. We see this especially in the church where we journey with one another. We see our common humanity. We share in our common mortality. We hold together our joys and our fears and all the things that make us human together, things that transcend all the divisions that our culture or our politics would place upon us. And as a pastor, I get to see how much we have in common, our common humanity, our joys, our fears, our hopes, and our passion when it comes down to it, where the rubber hits the road underneath it all. We are so, so similar. Jesus was concerned about reconciling different groups, knowing that that reconciliation was a prerequisite to peace. And in his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus does just that. The cross itself is a symbol of that reconciliation of God to humanity and human beings to one another. Jesus turns an instrument of death and destruction into a symbol of hope and life and peace. And along with Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we should resist the narrative of division and seek out and hold firmly on to our common life and the thriving of all people to hold together a common hope for a world where we love our neighbors as ourselves and we live into our baptismal covenant to work for justice and peace in all the earth. On this Palm Sunday, in this Holy Week, on Easter morning, Jesus again will show us the reconciling power of the cross 
and invite us once again into the new life that it promises us. Let's journey faithfully and together. Amen.